Well, we've come to the end of this year's installment of our sermon series entitled Patriarchs and Promises. Next week we return to the lectionary texts as we start September and look forward to the beginning of our programmatic year here at St. Anselm. But today we see the story of Jacob and his family is far from over. It's far from over. Jacob has yet to return to the land of promise that God has chosen him for, and he has yet to reconcile with his brother Esau, which is yet to come. Nevertheless, this is a good stopping point because here we are still with Jacob and his family and their father-in-law Laban. And Jacob is prospering by the hand of God. And God reveals himself to Jacob, once again calling him at the end of today's text back to the promised land. So next summer, we will pick up with Jacob and Rachel and Leah and the whole family going back to the promised land and see what happens. But for today, there's yet one installment. And you've probably noticed that there's been a common theme here from the end of Genesis 25, where we started this summer, with Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. And that common theme has been trickery, God's mercy, and his grace to his chosen. Now, once again, today's passage tells a similar story, but there's a little twist. Today, there's a contrasting emphasis between two types of men, the greedy man and the man who depends on God. And we'll see that Jacob, the trickster, has learned something. He's far from perfect, but he's learned something here. He's learned to depend on God. And of course, from the text today, we also take that God's comfort is for those who humble themselves and exalt in Him those who humble themselves and exalt in Him. So what is this all about spots and stripes and modeling and black lambs, anyhow? If you were scratching your head a little bit as Brian was reading that lengthy first lesson, you're not alone. I was too when I first read this. What is all of this about flocks and herds? What's going on? It's, the passage is a strange one to our modern ears. What is this all about sticks being peeled and put in water troughs and sheep and goats? Why does Jacob care so much? Why does Laban agree to it? Well, let's take a look together. I invite you to open to Genesis chapter 30, starting with verse 25. Or if you don't have your Bibles with you, we begin on page 2 in the order of service with the first lesson from Genesis 30. We pick up at the end of the baby competition. If you were here last week, you remember the baby competition. If you weren't, read the beginning of the chapter and you'll understand. Rachel and Leah have been trying to outdo one another in producing Jacob's line. But we also learned that it's by God's hand It's by God's hand that prosperity comes in childbirth 
and everything else. You see, the Apostle James, who was to write centuries later, has it right then and now. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly gifts, who does not change like shifting shadows. Jacob has fulfilled his obligation to Laban at this point in our story and wants to leave Laban, his father-in-law, and return with his now large family to the promised land. But Laban, if you noticed, does he want him to go? Does Laban want Jacob to leave? No, Laban does not want Jacob and his family to go. Why? Sorry, the fans are loud. You have to be loud. Yeah, everywhere that Jacob turns is blessed and seems to prosper. He has the golden touch, the Midas touch, as it were, right? From the Greek mythology. But, of course, we know that it doesn't lie with him. It lies with the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 30, verses 27 and 28 with me. But Laban said to him, that is Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Now, this seems to be really generous, but remember, Laban has used and abused Jacob the last 14 years and gotten rich off of him because God has favored Jacob just as he favored Isaac and Abraham before him. Of course, he, that is Jacob, is God's chosen patriarch through whom the nation of Israel and ultimately Jesus Christ himself, the Savior, will come and bless the world. Do you remember Abraham was called to be blessed to be a blessing in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? And Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave, not because, and this is important, not because he loves his daughters, not because he loves his grandchildren, but because Jacob is that golden goose, that man with the Midas touch. And Laban's heart, far from being filled with gratitude and love, is filled rather with impious greed. And he wants to gain more and more through Jacob from God. Jacob, on the other hand, knows that God will provide. Jacob's proposal is a step of faith, whereas Laban's proposal here, an agreement to Jacob's terms, has no risk attached to it. Has no risk attached to it. Look with me again at the text, this time verses 32 through 34, and we'll see the terms. These are the wages that Jacob will take from Laban. Let me pass through all your flock, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages, says Jacob. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs is found with me, that is found with me, shall be counted as stolen. 
And Laban responds, good. Or in the Hebrew, fine. Let it be to you as you have said. Now, why is Laban so quick to agree to this? Well, because he believes that Jacob is going to be cheated by this plan. Notice what Laban does next, just to make sure, in verse 35. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and the female goats that were speckled and spotted and every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So what's going on here is that Laban, just to make sure that Jacob's not going to get anything, takes all of the marked animals and moves them three days away so that they can't mate, so that they can't reproduce, so that Jacob is left with nothing. Now, Gordon Wenham, one of the scholars that I have consulted this series, points out that typically in this day, a shepherd making a wage takes 20% of the offspring of a flock, right? So it's like he gets a percentage of what's going on as his wages. Do you see how what Jacob is doing here is actually trusting God? Because Jacob is saying, I don't want 20%, the normal deal. I just want the spotted ones and the black ones. So it's a percentage of a percentage of the offspring. And then, of course, Laban tries to cheat him out of even that. Do you see what's going on here? So in Laban's mind, Jacob is not going to get anything. And remember, this is Laban's son-in-law. This is family. That makes it all the worse. But Jacob himself is still wily. And he's decided to try to influence the herd by putting these striped sticks in the water. Now, that seems really weird to us. It's what we would call in our day an old wives' tale, right? To put, spike, to put striped things in the water, the idea back in this era, and this is kind of where you have to dig into, you know, old-time ancient thought and culture. The idea is that if the herd um, that were mating saw something that was startling in their eyes, if the female was startled while she was mating, she would have spotted or impure animals. Okay? So Jacob's taken this old wives' tale kind of to its end and thinking, oh, at least try this. Right? And so he does that. So he's not completely trusting in God. He's, he's still a, a wily, clever guy, right? In keeping with his character. But ultimately, the fact that he even agrees to this deal is trusting that God is going to prosper him in a very bad situation. That God is going to bring him out ahead somehow from this situation. It is by God's intervention, we learn later, that Jacob's flocks were stronger at the end of this. And interestingly, science actually makes, makes this make sense. I won't get into it too much, but do you guys remember doing the is it the, the Punnett squares that you do in high school? Yeah? Some people that are still in high school or closer to it than me. 
right? You do the genetics, it's like the, the, the different traits, right? And they match up and they don't match up. And Well, one of the things you learn from that is that recessive genes can come through, right? And so one of the things that Laban doesn't know, of course, through no fault of his own, is how genetics work. And these being hybrid sheep, God uses both genetics, but then miraculously expands and prospers Jacob's flocks out of that. And so Jacob actually has the stronger hybrid herd, whereas Laban's offspring, the offspring of his flock, are weaker because they're purebreds, you see. So there's a lot going on here. But don't lose track of the main point. And that is that God has prospered Jacob. God has prospered Jacob. And Jacob agrees that God has prospered him. Verse 43 talks about how his flocks teemed or expanded greatly. But then in the next chapter, chapter 31, because this passage... uh, covers two chapters, verse 3, Jacob gives testimonies to both Rachel and Leah that this is not his doing, but it is God's doing. Look at 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, this is verse 5, I see that your father does not regard me with favor, as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to cheat me, or to harm me, rather but God did not permit him to harm me. And look at verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. Jacob relates this to his wives, to his family, as an act of faith in what God has done for him. It's a witness, right? It's a standing up and saying, look at what the Lord has done for us despite these odds. Despite... Laban's trickery and cheating. God has made me prosper. And God confirms that to him. Right? So, how does all this apply to us today? How does this come home? Well, how can we look at this today in our own lives? Well, we have a choice every day between being a greedy person and being a person who trusts in God. Now notice, Jacob's not 100% pure, and neither are you or I. And yet, Jacob is faithful to God, trusting in him, whereas Laban is only trusting in himself and his greed. And friends, the main point today that I'm going to make to you is that greed is a thief. Greed is a thief. But God's faithfulness will never fail. God's faithfulness will never fail. 
Greed is a thief. Well, let's start with that lesser point. The saddest figure in this passage is actually Laban, the father-in-law. In his swindling from the beginning, he uses his daughters and his son-in-law in his efforts to get rich and richer. It's not like he's bad off to begin with. He offloads Leah, his less desirable daughter, without any kind of bride price. He rids himself of Rachel, the more beloved daughter. He gets 14 years of slave labor from his own son-in-law. And then today's story, he tries to cheat his family to boot. Laban is the man of greed. He cannot contain his greed, and so he loses everything as a consequence. He loses his daughters. If you've read further, you know and you see by Scripture's own word they have no love for him. He loses his son-in-law, Jacob, who leaves him. He loses all of his grandchildren and all of that relationship. And he loses, finally, his bit of wealth that he has had as Jacob takes it. Laban could have been satisfied with the blessings that God had given, but was not. Instead, he was driven by greed and used trickery against his own family. The contrast here for a change is Jacob, who comes out looking a little bit better. Despite being a trickster and a deceiver, Jacob is looking, at least at this point, to please God and looking towards the good of his family. Two traits that are important to any patriarch and any father, even in modern times. While Jacob still does clever things to optimize the production of the herd, his motivation here isn't greed, because if it were, he would have never taken the agreement in the first place that he makes with Laban. Rather, he's content with what God is going to bless him with, and he trusts in it. The text of this story asks the first readers, and us, in what ways do you struggle with greed? In what ways do you struggle with greed? Not if, notice, in what ways, because we all do. There are many types of greed, but the church has a simple definition that has withstood centuries. The greed is the pursuit of power, status, influence, reputation, or possession at the expense of the moral law. Let me say that again. The greed is the pursuit of status, power, influence, reputation, or possession at the expense of the moral law, also at the expense of one's other obligations, and in disregard of the rights and well-being of others. That's greed. So putting yourself first often for things that you don't even need but desire for at the expense of what is right and just is something that all human beings struggle with because of our sinful nature. Because from the beginning now, we've put ourselves on the throne right, rather than God, right? And so we try to make sure that everything lines up for us. We try to make sure that everything is good for us. And we don't give a thought necessarily first to God. And there's two types of this greed. The first is easier to spot because it's more classic. 
It's found in that warping of the American dream to the end of inordinate ambition. It's the person that takes the job at the expense of his or her obligations to their family. It's the person who engages in trickery and clever schemes that cross a moral line to advance in their office or in their company. It's the student who cheats in school, often not because he or she is unprepared or not very bright, but just because they want to get to the next level, because they'd rather have the A plus instead of the A. This first type of greed is rampant in our society. You see, it's not just about wealth. It's about so much more. It's a disposition of the heart. It is a me-first attitude that, like Laban, harms the soul of the greedy person, but also harms everybody around him. In his case, isolates him from his family. But that greed is not just a problem of the successful. No, no, don't think that. The unsuccessful, the poor, can also be greedy and often are more greedy. There's a victim entitlement type of greed also at root in the American culture. It's best summarized by the Three Stooges character Curly. Remember Curly, the bald one? Who says, I'm a victim of circumstances. Right? I'm a victim because of what the world has done to me. I have suffered and therefore I have the right to have these things. I have the right to have these things. This type of greed can be found in a person in school or in office, in a person who's actually legitimately a victim, a person who might be struggling under an underhanded manager or a teacher. It can be found in someone who's generally, truly had a difficult life and a hard hand to play. But because it's a disposition of the heart, it can affect the successful as well as the unsuccessful. And such people are often victims of greed, which of course continues to spiral them down in their cycle. They convince themselves that the rules of normal morality do not apply to them because their situation is different. They commit acts grasping at power, money, and ambition because their situation is particular and different, because they're victims. Neither one of these types of greed is biblical, and neither one of them should be engaged in by the Christian. Look at what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, our epistle reading, starting with verse 8. Be sober-minded, says St. Peter, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the kinds of suffering you are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, knowing that what you're suffering is being suffered by those, and probably worse, around the world, right? Your situation gives you no excuse to transgress the moral law and hurt your own soul. Why would you want to do that? When it's put that way, we think to ourselves, well, no, why would I want to do that? 
Why would I hurt myself by bringing injustice into my soul? And yet, we do that. We do that all the time. We do that all the time. So you see, the thing about greed is it is that disposition of the soul that can be had in any situation. It's that inordinate desire to want to do it for yourself. It's that desire coupled with pride and often with envy that you deserve something and therefore don't need to listen to the laws of God. How has greed tempted you? How has it caught you? Greed is a thief. Reject its temptation and see the trap that it is. Repent of it and receive forgiveness. For your father, as Peter says, cares for you. He cares for you. So what's the contrast? The faithful person who trusts in God. The person who trusts that God is going to care for him. Jacob is largely this person. He's the person that talks with integrity and walks with integrity, most of the time at least, even when he's cheated in this passage. The person who, despite his shortcomings, tends first to the justice and the goodness of his own soul and the goodness of his family rather than wealth. And, and also first in the service of God who is just and he knows will provide for him. In today's story, Jacob does trust in the Lord and in this particular case is a model for us. And God confirms to him what he has done. God sees the injustice of what Laban's done. And God tells Jacob this outright. Again, turn back to the first lesson. Look at chapter 31, verse 12. So this is at the end of the reading. It's on page 4 in your bulletin. Actually, let's start with verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I have seen all that Laban is doing for you. Friends, as hard as it is, we as Christians must live righteously, as righteously as we can, by God's grace. Now we can get angry at injustice, but we cannot fret at it. And we can't allow pride, envy, and greed, as well as avarice, disguised as a desire for justice, as it often is, to entrap us. When cheated, cheat or injustice is committed against us, it is good for us to still seek what is just, what is God's will. It is not good for us to use our situation as an, ex- as an excuse, a rationale, or a reason to get dishonest and get ahead. Again, why harm your own soul? Why not entrust yourself to God? Finally, look at what St. Peter says again in the epistle. This time, look at verses 6 and 7, and then jump down to 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, 
for He cares for you. And jumping down to verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, what St. Peter is saying is far beyond your own hand. The promise to you as a Christian is that God Himself, if you humble yourselves, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You'll come out ahead, and you'll come out ahead with integrity, either in this life or the next. Do we have a trust? Do we have a faith strong enough to see that in God? and to entrust ourselves to Him. As a Christian, I hope you do. I hope you do. And as someone who often fails himself, I hope I get better at it. You can depend on God. You can put your trust in Him. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to break your principles or the moral law, your integrity. Take this to heart. Apply it at school, at work, in all your dealings. We've seen a great change in Jacob by God's grace in this passage. Next summer, we'll pick up with his long adventure home. But as we return to the lectionary, our adventure, our sojourn through this life continues together. Let us encourage each other. Let us encourage ourselves to be humble and to trust in God to exalt us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.